Luke chapter 2, in our series, Born as the King, and looking at that first Christmas, but then thinking about how many first Christmases we have in our lives. Now, if you're like me, you probably remember a few of your early first Christmases. Nobody remembers their first Christmas, let's be honest. But many of us remember those first few Christmases where we are conscious and we are available to remember or empowered to remember what first Christmases were like. And if you were raised by loving parents and had a loving family like mine, how many know those first Christmases that you can remember kind of ruined every Christmas for you ever since, right? Like, you can't replicate that. I remember the fire and the tree and the smells and the cookies and everything like that. And the best part about your first Christmas is, is that you don't have to do a stinking thing for anybody. Amen, somebody. I, just, I want to get back to those Christmases. Amen. But, but then there's that first Christmas where you actually have to buy gifts for people. How many remember this one? Actually, they give you a fake one first. The fake one is the one where the little company comes to your elementary school. They set up Santa's workshop in your gymnasium. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I used to do this. My parents would give me 80 bucks. I'd walk in. It wasn't my money. <laughs> That's the best part about that. Walk in there, start to buy gifts for all my family members, right? But every kid that I went to school with did the exact same thing. Santa's workshop had different sections. It had the toy section, book section, like junky little garbage tools for dad section, like things that mom's about to throw away before New Year's Day section, you know, for the, for the kitchen, like, like spatulas made out of rubber bands and stuff like that, you know, things that will not last the long haul, right? And so, you know, every kid that I went to school with, we would, we would get so excited about Santa's workshop, not to buy gifts for our parents and for our family. We'd go straight to the toy section, buy ourselves some things, right? Come on, somebody. We used to have like that little thing with the little two wires. How many remember the little thing with the wires and the little wheel that would go through the wires? Oh, I'm speaking your love language now, aren't I? Come on. And I used to get that every year. I had to buy it for myself every year because every year it broke before, again, New Year's Day. And, and so you spend like 80, $60 of that 80 bucks on you, and then you buy everybody in your family a pack of gum and you call it a day. Amen. But then there's that first Christmas where you actually have, you know, a significant other. Maybe that's you this year. Maybe that's you this year. It's like first Christmas, you're together with someone. You're so excited. Oh, everything's new. You're, you're, you're going to buy them gifts, and they're going to buy you gifts. And let me just tell all the men, all the men in, the, in, that, in that scenario, please, please, please take it from me. Don't buy clothes. No, don't do it to yourself. She won't wear them. She will not like them. She will put it on a good face, and she will throw them away. Okay, so you just... Don't do the clothes thing, buy jewelry, buy expensive things, that's fine. But, but then, then there's that first Christmas with your first child. And those are beautiful moments. Can I get a good amen? Oh, it's so beautiful to have a baby in the family. And, and then you think about Jesus was a baby. And he, he came like that weak, helpless child. And it kind of gives you meaning to the season of Christmas, the first Christmas as a family. And you just dress up the little baby. How many know that's like 50% of the fun is dressing up the baby like a little elf with the little curly shoes. You know what I'm talking about? Well, it's the first baby Christmas, and you really, like, overdo it for the first child. You like, buy him, like, $500 worth of gifts, and you just put it all around him. He has no clue what he's doing because he's pooping his pants as the whole thing's happening. And he's just like, like, then you have that third baby. You get them nothing. You get them nothing. You're like, ah, it doesn't matter the first two. So I don't get nothing for you. And they're like, that's it. We learned our lesson those first Christmases. 
Right? And, then, and, then, and then there's that first Christmas where you have children that are old enough to fight over the Xbox controller all Christmas day long. And it's that Christmas that you start to ask yourself, who was the madman who came up with Christmas? There's that first Christmas too. You can tell that that's where I am right now. <laughs> first Christmases, and, and here's what I love about our church. A lot of people in our church, this is your first Christmas knowing that Christmas is about Jesus. I love that. Come on. Is there anybody here willing to put up your hand? First Christmas that I know Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Put up your hand. Hi, 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 hi. Wow, look at the name. Awesome, awesome, awesome. We love you. We thank God for you. That is so beautiful, all the salvations in our church. We should have a whole bunch of people like that. When you realize that it's not just a holiday season, it's, it's about the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. God sent his son into the world to save us and bring us back to himself. That's a beautiful first Christmas. But there's a first Christmas and there's a group of first Christmas people that I want to talk to today that, you know what, this is not the most entertaining topic, but it's a true kind of first Christmas. It's the people who are experiencing the first Christmas in sadness. Maybe it's the first Christmas without mom, your first Christmas without dad, your first Christmas after your divorce, after the breakup, after the job loss, and you're, and you're just like everybody else is merry and bright, and you're just miserable. You wish that you could skip over the holidays completely. Just get to February 2nd. Let's celebrate Groundhog Day. I'll do that one. <laughs> like how, how many know, though, how many of you have ever had a first Christmas like that? Or, or maybe you are having a first Christmas like Like my heart was going out to you this week as I prepared this message. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to the people here. Your first Christmas and it's not a Christmas of joy. It's the first Christmas where you think, man, I just wish that Christmas could just be like over before it starts. But I got, I got, I got a word for you. I got a word for you because I think that you are in a very blessed position. So you're, in a you're in a blessed position because this Christmas, as sad as it might be, as hard as it might be, your heart might be more open to the real meaning of Christmas than everybody else's. Like you're not interested in gifts, you need God. You're not interested in holly, you need hope. You don't, you don't, you're not looking to make it all decorative. You need a divine appointment with the living God who can take your bad, sad experiences and turn them around for his good. And I want to tell you, you might be going through one of those Christmases this year. And if you're not, well, you can listen into our conversation today and take accurate notes because you will have a couple of those Christmases someday. It's those Christmases you don't want to have. What are we talking about? First Christmases. With that in mind, let's go to the first Christmas. Amen. Let's go to Luke chapter 2. All of our campuses stand with me. Milford, Winsocket, North Ottawa. Let's stand together. Let's read the first Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. 
because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, what did he say? Say the next two words. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And now our key verse tonight. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph And again the words, and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. In other words, they're like, this is what the angel said we'd find. And now we found it. And this is crazy. And it says this in verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary stored up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity coming into your presence. Thank you for the opportunity afforded to me to preach your word. Forgive your servant his sins, for they are many. Help us, O God, in this moment to hear your voice, to see you high and lifted up. Glory to God in the highest. May our hearts in this season remember that Jesus is this season's reason. And may we know that because of that night so many thousand years ago, we have hope every night since. May we see Jesus and him only. In his mighty name we pray and everybody said, amen. Amen. Have a seat. All of our locations. God bless you. First Christmases. That um, That great passage has been read to you so many times, has been heard by you so many times, and is such a beautiful moment for these shepherds, Shepherd, God, God sends news of his son's birth to who? To shepherds. Why? Because God is a shepherd. And when you work in the industry, you share the news of your firstborn son with your coworkers. Come on, somebody. He sends his angel out. I don't know if you saw what happened, but his angel shows up in a field with shepherds watching over their sheep in the middle of nowhere. Consider yourself one of these shepherds, and you're just doing your shepherding thing. You're just watching sheep 
calling them by name, watching over them, maybe, maybe keeping an eye out for some wolves. I mean, if you're a shepherd in the first stage, how many know a quiet night is a perfect night? You don't want disturbance. You don't want somebody showing up uninvited. You don't want somebody disturbing the peace of your sheep because to chase them down is a pain in the neck. Can I get a witness, anybody? You don't have any idea what I'm talking about because you're not a shepherd. Neither am I. I'm just kind of flowing with it right here. But all of a sudden, an angel invades their evening. And he has to say, fear not. Why? Because they were afraid. These people who want to say, I want to see an angel. No, you don't. Every time an angel shows up in the Bible, he has to say, don't be afraid. That's because an angel is fearsome, powerful, mighty, right? This is an angel we're talking about. Fear not. I bring you good tidings of great joy. That's for all people. In the city of David there is born to you Christ the Lord, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And, and, and then he says these words, verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. I love those words. For you. I just had a side point to give you tonight. I want you to write it down in your notes. It just happened to kind of come across my mind as I read this passage. Here's what I want you to write down. God doesn't want something from you before he wants something for you. This is a sign for you. I'm coming to do something good for you. And ladies and gentlemen, let me just tell you something. Everything that God wants to do and everything God wants you to do, he wants to do it. He wants you to do it for your good because God is good. God wants good for you. And he wants to pour blessings into your life. Please, please, please understand that our number one problem in life is to give God the credit for what the devil does and the devil the credit for what God does. This is the natural course of human events. Oh, God took my mother away. Oh, God took my dad away. Oh, God had my parents get divorced. Oh, God did that. God, no, God did not do that. He's not the author of evil. The devil did that. And then he convinced you that God did that. Jesus said about the devil, two things about the devil you need to know. He's a thief and he's a liar. He's a thief. In other words, he'll take from you and steal from you and rob you. And then he's a liar because he comes along after stealing from you. And then he lies to you and says, God did that to you. No, God did not do that to you. The devil did that to you. You need to know that your God is good to you. He's a blessing God. He's a giving God. And he wants good things for his people. Like, this is, this is on my heart for some of you. You need to understand this. God wants something for you way before he ever wants something from you. Oh, he wants good works for you, but he first wants to do a good work in you. Oh, he wants generosity from you, but he wants to first show you how generous he's been to you. Oh, he wants joy out of your life. He wants kindness out of your life, but not until he fills your life with his kindness and his goodness. How do we get it? We get it through Jesus Christ who dies for our sins, wipes away the sin record in our lives so that the Holy Spirit of God can come in us. We are the temples of the third person of the Trinity and God dwells in us bodily and we have everything we need for life and godliness through our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose for us. God wants something for you. This shall be a sign for you. I think about, wow, that must have been a night. Have you ever asked God for a sign? 
Have you, ever, have you ever done this? Like, have you ever said, Lord, I just want a sign, I want a sign. And sometimes we don't know what we're doing when we ask for a sign. Because sometimes God actually shows us something. Oh, man, now I actually have to do what, he's, what I said he would do if he showed me a sign. <laughs> Anybody ever been there? So I thought, just preliminarily, and to apply the sign that the angel gave to the shepherds, um, to them, I want to just preliminarily give you simple rules for recognizing a sign from God. Okay? You can write these down. Simple rule for recognizing a sign from God. Number one, a sign is something that you wouldn't normally see. So, so no, you can't say, God, if you want me to skip out of work today and go to the beach, help my car to start. <laughs> okay, that's not a sign. It's just your selfish selfish spirit just not wanting to go to work, right? right. Simple rule number two for recognizing a sign from God will never contradict the word of God. So don't be asking for a sign to divorce your wife. Come on. Don't be asking for a sign for you not to give. Don't ask God for a sign for anything not to forgive. Oh, Lord, I'll wait until I see a sign from you before I forgive them. Who said you need to wait for a sign? He said do it. Some of you still on the fence about baptism. Some of you are like, oh, I'm waiting for a sign. Here's your sign. Do it. <laughs> Follow in obedience. You say, I don't feel it. You don't walk by feelings, friend. You walk by faith. We obey God by faith. We believe that we do what he says. He's going to bless us because he's always true to what he said he would do. A sign from God will never contradict the word of God. And I think about this too. Sometimes we don't need a sign at all. We just need more of the word of God in our lives. Some, some of you are waiting for God to speak to you, but you've never opened his word. Like this is how he speaks now. Oh, I wish I could have one of those moments with an angel. Oh, I wish I could have a sign. Like, Pastor, how did you come in to know that you're supposed to be a pastor? No, no angel. I wish there was. Some days I wish there was an angel that I could say, hey, it's your fault. You sent this angel into my life. Right? That's sometimes why we want a sign from God. Sometimes we want a sign from God so that we can blame God when the things don't go well after we follow the sign. Oh, I'm preaching now because you ain't saying amen. <laughs> but you know it's true. Some of us are praying about things that God says to do in his word. We're praying about whether or not we should do it. You don't pray about obedience. You just do it. You just do it. You see the fruit from it. Amen. Num number three, though, and this one I really want to bear down on, and I want you to kind of like circle, start, whatever. A sign is typically a smaller picture of a larger reality. I really want you to underline it, circle, start, whatever you got to do, because number three is where I'm going to bear down on this message at the end. Now, you think about this, this makes total sense. When you're driving on the road, you see a bunch of signs. And if you see a sign over the road, and the sign has this, this arrow going up and to the left, or sorry, to, to the right, you're right, so up and to the right, how many know that that little picture of the arrow going up and to the right is just a smaller picture of what the road's about to do? But the road is much bigger than the arrow on the sign. And the point of the arrow is not the point of the, the, the arrow is not the point of the sign. 
The, the, the arrow on the sign is pointing to something much larger. Thank you for the sign, but I'm not going to fall in love with the sign. i got to look to the reality that the sign is pointing me to. Because if I follow the sign, I'll drive better. I'll get where I need to go safer. And I'll be glad that I watched the sign. But I'm not going to fall in love with the sign. Hold on to the sign. i got to let the sign go and, lo- and follow where the sign leads. This is what I'm talking about when it comes to Christmas. Some of us have got to learn to let go of what we want out of Christmas. We've got to learn to let go out of uh, those, those old Christmas memories when we were children and, and those Christmases ruined every Christmas for us. You've got to let go of that. You've got to grow up. You've got to move on. Those were a nice sign, but they were, they were not the ultimate thing. Like that was a nice memory, but it was only pointing to a greater reality. And the greater reality was 2,000 years ago, a poor Jewish couple got a miracle child who gave them to the world for your sins and my sins. And he died and he rose again for us. That's the sign. So it doesn't matter really if you really think about it. You, if you are holding on the hurts from the past in your, in your holiday season or if you're broken in this holiday season, you need to remember, friend, that it is 2017. And that means it's 2017 from the time Jesus Christ entered our reality. How many of you are glad it's not 2017 years since Muhammad happened? or Buddha happened, or, or rational scientific thought happened. It's 2,000 years, 2017. Every time the schools of our nation which reject God teach their children, teach our children to put down the date on their papers, they are testifying to the fact that there was one man that separated history from BC into AD and his name was Jesus. It's a sign. Don't fall in love with the sign. Fall in love with the reality that the sign is pointing to. And so this is so crazy about these shepherds because listen to what the shepherd, listen to what the angel says is the sign. Did you see it? Because I saw it. And I was like, that can't possibly be the sign. What does he say? This shall be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, let's rewind the moment. First, shepherds just hanging out at night in the middle of the fields of Palestine are just watching their flocks, and boom, angel. And then after the angel says what he says, did you see what happened next? Suddenly, a great heavenly host shows up and starts the hallelujah chorus. Like, how many know that if that happened to you, that would be the sign? (laughs) But the angel says, no, I'm not the sign. And all these angels around me singing to God, that's not the sign either. Here's the sign. You're going to find a baby. He's going to be wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now, I have had three children with my wife. Three precious bundles. And I think about how could this possibly be a sign? What was so unique about this moment that it was a sign? And I thought about it. It wasn't the swaddling. We've been swaddling forever. I remember when my babies were born. I was front row seat to birth. 
That is, a, <laughs> that is awesome. Like everything after that is very complicated, but that moment is awesome. Yeah? Like dads, you know, you remember, you know, you remember that? Like your heart just, explosion. And then the, the nurses are so like careful with that. They don't exactly, thank God they're there. Because I would have dropped them. And I take the baby and the baby comes out of the womb. And how does the baby come out of the womb? They take that baby, wash him off, put him on one of those scales. Anybody ever been there? Little heat lamp incubator scale. They measure the baby. They take tape measure to the baby's face, heads. I'm sitting there counting five fingers, five fingers, five toes, five. Yes! Right? And then they take that baby crying, crying, like they aren't like giving up yet. Crying baby. And they put him on a little cloth, and the cloth is folded triangular. You know what I'm talking about? And take the one, wrap it this side. Take it. This baby's like, ah! Wrap it. Ah! Ah! Like, how many know? That's how it goes. Thank God for those nurses. They know what they're doing. What I'm trying to tell you, though, is the swaddling is not the sign. What did he say? You'll find him swaddled, but that's not out of the ordinary. You'll find him lying in a manger. Now, if there's one facet of the Christmas story that we have totally Americanized and jacked up, it is the idea of the manger. We don't have the first clue what it looks like. Here's, here, here's what we picture the manger to be. This is what I call the Americanized manger. Ah, oh, so beautiful. <laughs> Would you ever lay your kid down in that thing? <laughs> that does not look safe. There's great gaps between all the wood there. Come on. Modern moms would be like, ah, ah. I want to know if that's OSHA approved. Come on. <laughs> and uh, modern American mangers are made out of wood because there's plenty of wood around here in America. This is actually a European conception. It comes from our fathers in Europe who thought, you know what, it must have been wood because we make our stuff out of wood, so that's what they had. They had a wood manger. No. In Bethlehem and in the first century in Palestine, and still to this day, there's hardly any wood there to build with. You do not build houses out of wood there. You build them out of stone. Stone was the number one building commodity in Jesus' day. And so the manger actually was made out of stone. And it looked more like this, a stone box. And interestingly enough, you'll notice there's no hay there. This is actually a manger. There's a picture of a manger from Bethlehem. Still to this day, they do this. Because what this actually held was not food in, in the climate of Israel, which is a lot like Southern California's climate. There's food everywhere all year long. Grass is every. There's no snow. There's no, there's no hail. There's no frost. How many of you want to move there right now? Let's go. I'm just like, and so what, what they, they didn't have to worry about getting a manger made to hold hay. They had to get a manger made to hold water because as plentiful as hay and feed was, water was on short supply. And now you have to think about this, that shepherds in the first century, they had to worry about 
thieves and robbers and people coming to try to kill and steal their sheep. But they also had to worry about, how am I going to get water? See, they understood that the manger had to be filled with water. And here's why that manger is a sign for us and for them. See, those, those shepherds needed water. They longed for water. When they found a water source, it was life to them and their flocks. And so here's what you need to know, that when Mary and Joseph swaddled that baby, put them in the manger, and the shepherds came and saw the baby was lying in a manger, they were the first ones to know that Jesus came to be the living water from God. I want you to write this down in your notes. This is point number one. That manger is a sign from God. That God fills our eternal thirst with Jesus. Deep down inside, there's a thirst. We try to fill it with every possible thing we can fill it with. When we're young, we try to fill it with toys. When we're teenagers, we try to fill it with friends and fun. When we're a little bit older, teenagers, we try to fill it with alcohol and partying. When we, when we get to college, we go one of two ways. We either fill it with more partying or studies to get that degree so that we'll feel satisfied, quenched. When we graduate college, then we find a different kind of thirst. We're looking, looking for love. Somebody to hold me. Somebody to love me. Somebody to be with me. Somebody to make other babies with me. Looking, 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 searching, searching, searching. And it's so funny how we are so tricked by just jumping from one fountain to the next, looking for something that will satisfy that eternal thirst deep down inside of us. And, and we'll look for it, and in, in, after we get married, we'll look for it with career in advancement and, and money and then 401K values and stock options. And, and, then, and then we'll look for it in retirement and having to make sure that we're, we're going to have plenty of money so we feel like we're quenching. We'll chase and we'll chase and we retire and then we realize we, we got all this stuff that really doesn't satisfy us and we wait to die. Like, that's not what life is all about, friend. Like, if you're not careful, if you don't show up to church once in a while and let somebody like me yell at you for a few moments, you will chase all the fountains that never can fill you. But there's one fountain that can fill you so that you don't have to look to those fountains to fill you. You can enjoy what God gives you but not need what God gives you to fill you because God's already filled you with himself. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus said... If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. This is what Jesus wants to do for you. He wants to satisfy your eternal thirst. So, so, so that you don't have to hold dearly and preciously to the things of life, friend. Please listen to what I am saying and what I am not saying. I am not saying that the job is sinful. I am not saying that wanting to get married is sinful. I am not saying wanting to graduate and do well in school, do well in your career. I'm not saying, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is don't make those good things God things. This is what idolatry does to us. We take good things and we make them ultimate things and we serve them. And if we're not careful, we'll get the order wrong. We'll, 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 we'll leverage God to get what we really want. 
this is where frustration with the Christian religion finds its birthplace. Well, I tried that and it didn't work for me. What were you trying? Well, I went to church and then things didn't go well. It actually went worse. So if that's true, it's not working. No, what are you looking for? What are you searching for? What are you hoping for? Because if you're hoping for God and you get God, it doesn't matter what else comes at you. This is what God wants for you. You're filled in him, so it doesn't matter if, if things get taken away from you or things get put back into you. It doesn't matter. You can be happy in every season. You can be joyful no matter what comes and goes because you know you've been filled up with Jesus and he can make all things work together for your good. Like this, is, this is so important for us to understand because Christians are not supposed to avoid the world. Listen, listen. Christianity is not Buddhism. What is Buddhism? What is, the, what, is the ultimate story? what is the ultimate truth of Buddhism? The elimination of desire. No, it's, it's, that's Buddhism. That's not Christianity. Christianity doesn't eliminate desires. Christianity actually correctly orders desires. I can want good things. I can want all the things that life can give me. But I don't have to be devastated if I lose them. If I don't get them. You see how, see how God wants you to be whole? This is how you get centered. This is how you get stable. This is how you don't become a fruit loop looking for everybody to fill what you can't fill. This is how you don't be a suck on everybody's time, a suck on everybody's life, a suck on money, a suck on everybody around you. Because you know why? Because you don't need them anymore. You can love them and you can be in relation with them, but they're not your source. Jesus is your source. Now you can live freely. Now you can lose to the glory of God. You can win to the glory of God. You can gain. You can increase. But you can also decrease to the glory of God. This is what Paul meant when he said, I can do all things through him that gives me strength. Because right before he said that, he said, I can be in prison and I can be free. I can be well fed and I can be starving. I can have plenty of money. I can have no money. Why? Because I have Jesus. I've got, I've, I've got fullness. This is why Job will say these words, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. And the devil comes along and takes, remember, he's the taker. He takes from Job. He takes his money. He takes his farms. He takes his flocks. He takes his children. He leaves his wife. Then his wife opens her mouth and you're like, that's why he left her. Some of you missed that joke, but you understand what I'm talking about. And he looks around and he says, and, his, and he's sitting there in ashes, and he's cutting off the boils with char, shards of pottery. And his wife comes by and says, what are you doing? Curse God and die. And he said, shall we accept good from God and not evil? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can take my life, but you can't take my relationship with my father. Amen. This is the Christian's freedom. Jesus said, everyone, verse 13 of John 4, he said to the woman of the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. You drink the water of a, of a fiancé, eventually they're not going to be filling you anymore. You drink the, the water of children, eventually they, they, don't, they don't fill you anymore. The water of career success eventually runs out. Because once you get it, then you've got to hold on to it. Everyone who drinks of these waters, they'll be thirsty again. But the water that I give him, if you drink that, what did he say? You'll never be, say it, thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring 
of the living water. This is what the shepherd saw that night. He was laid in that manger to teach guys thirsty for water that God's only begotten son was the eternal fountain that never runs dry. Number two. That manger is a sign that God takes outsiders and makes them insiders. <laughs> How many of you here today? You got a nativity up on your mantle or on your shelf or on your window. Anybody got a nativity? You know what I'm talking about, nativity? You know, with a little house, little fake Americanized manger, right? Who, who's in your nativity? You got baby Jesus, I hope. You got Mary and Joseph. You got the three kings, although we don't know there were three. There were three gifts, but these three wise men, right? You got them. You got the angel. His angel's hanging from a little wire in the back of the manger. like. <laughs> Who's on the other side? Shepherds. You know, you know how the story opens up in Luke chapter 2? Isn't it funny? How does it, how does it end up? How does the story start? In the days when Caesar Augustus was on the throne, a decree went out that the whole world needed to be set, counted. So everybody, Caesar speaks, everybody moves. Caesar says, go home. Everybody goes home. Why? Because Caesar was everything. Caesar was, was the king. Caesar was the emperor. Caesar was it. And now today, 2,000 years later, he's a footnote on human history. Who's missing from the manger scene? Caesar Augustus. You know what it tells me? The people who are insiders now aren't going to matter later. The people who are all of that right now, the people that you like to compare yourself to right now, the people that you think, if only I could have their life, or they must really have the life, or man, look at them, they are so special, they are so beloved, surely they're happy. Man, if there's one thing that Hollywood is telling us right now, it's that that can't satisfy either. And you look at them, you say, man, they got it all together, look at their life. No, that's what they thought about Caesar Augustus, and today he's just a blip. A little blip. He's just like, for, for Luke's sake, he's just like, oh, I just want to tell you when it happened. Now I want to tell you what happened. <laughs> and you got Caesars on the outside and you got shepherds on the inside. And let me tell you why it's significant. Because shepherds in Jesus' day were the most despised social class of all social class. They were hated. They were vilified. They, they, they thought shepherds couldn't go to the temple and worship because their sheep were always stealing other people's grass and, and hay. That's, that, that's how it was in those days. You had to get your sheep fed. Sometimes you couldn't keep an eye on everywhere your sheep went to get fed. Outsiders. Losers. The people nobody wanted to be around. God says, I'm bringing you in. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know about you, but that really touches me because I don't know, maybe there's a couple of, couple of people here. You feel like an outsider. You feel like you don't belong. You feel like the church is the last place you should go to. That's just because you went to the wrong church. You come to the right place now. We love you. We want you here, whatever you've done. I don't care who you're sleeping with, what you're smoking, what you're chewing, or what you're drinking. Jesus Christ wants you to come home to his family. And he could take you where you are and put you in a place of prominence in his home. Got shepherds in that nativity. Every time you see a shepherd, I want you to look at that shepherd and say, thank you. Thank you for making it possible for someone like me to be where you are, right next to the Son of God. And they went in haste. They found Mary. They found Joseph, it says there. 
They found him because they knew, man, this guy is bringing us in. I love what it says in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. He's got your name written in his palm. How many know he's got big palms? <laughs> your name's there. And if your name is there, friend, it doesn't matter wherever else your name could be. If it's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, disciples go out, cast demons, heal the sick, raise the dead. They come back to Jesus. They're like, I can't believe it. I can't believe this, Jesus. You won't believe what's happened. What's going down in Galilee because of your name? There's something about this name. Wow. Everything that we say in your name, it comes to pass. He's like, all right, that's great. But listen, don't rejoice. The demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice rather that your name is written in the book of life. And no man can take that name out of the book of life. If God has written it down, it's staying there, written in the blood of Jesus. Number three, finally, that manger is a sign that God turns endings into new beginnings. Endings into new beginnings. How long? How could this manger be a sign? How could this manger be a sign? They went, it says there. They went and they found Mary, Joseph, baby lying in a manger, and the shepherds returned. And look at their response in verse 20. Glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and had seen. All they saw was a little baby in a manger. But I think about this now, tying it all together now. Listen, pay attention real quick. What happened when your babies were born? That nurse grabs that baby, measures him up, puts him back onto another table, wraps him up tight, straight, lays him down in your arms. But that's not where Jesus was laid, was he? He was laid in a stone box. I want to put a picture up here of what they probably saw that night. Eyes closed, wrapped tightly. What does that look like to you? That looks like a dead person. That looks like a death. I tell you what that looks like. It looks like the end. And those shepherds came into that, I don't know where they were, that home, that inn, that, 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 that setting, and they walked in and they saw the baby was there. <laughs> and then they would have seen this picture. They would have said, you want to see the baby? Because that's what we do. Mom's a little tired. She's a little worn out, right? She's had a big night. Dad say, you want to see my son? His earthly father reached down to that stone box and lifted his baby out of that place of death. And he was alive again. And I want to tell you something. Fast forward to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23. There's another Joseph. There's another Mary. This guy's name is Joseph of Arimathea. And he comes to Pilate. He says, I want that body of Jesus. I want to take that body. What does he do? He wraps it tight in linen cloth. He lays it in a tomb where no one had ever been laid before. You could call it a virgin tomb. And he put that, baby, that, he put that body wrapped up tight into that virgin tomb. And it says that the ladies were with him. Now Mary Magdalene had come with him. Mary, another Mary, comes with another Joseph to another stone enclosure with Jesus' body wrapped up and looking like it's all over again. 
But I want to tell you, just like his earthly father picked his son up out of that stone manger 2,000 years ago, just 33 years later, his heavenly father reached down his hands into that stone tomb and picked up his son and said, he's not dead. He's alive. He's alive forever. And he's alive for you. He takes the tomb and he empties it. Just like Joseph emptied the first stone enclosure, our Father in heaven emptied the second stone enclosure to tell you that your ending can be a new beginning. Through Jesus, God turns the tomb into a womb. Because whether you like it or not, someday your death is going to come and you will die. And if you don't got Jesus, it's a tomb. It's a tomb waiting for judgment. But if you got Jesus, it's a womb. It's a womb waiting for you to come on back out. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 14, it says this, We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus Christ will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself. I got good news for anybody whose Christmas is the first Christmas where it doesn't look so good. Your ending can be a new beginning in Jesus.